0: with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms
0: and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio. So use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. Call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial one 877 8 HOPENY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call one 800 522 4700 in wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in west virginia all right welcome to hoops tonight presented by FanDuel here at the volume happy wednesday everybody we are live on amp don't forget if you guys are watching on the podcast feed or on youtube that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We have an unbelievably jam-packed show tonight we're going to talk about kevin durant's debut with the phoenix suns the boston celtics getting a dominant win over the cleveland cavaliers that i think is very telling about the one seed race in the eastern conference and then the golden state warriors ripped off three consecutive wins without steph curry or andrew wiggins to rise up to the fifth seed in a shocking come from behind victory against the portland trailblazers last night and so much more NBA talk from around the league that we're going to be getting into. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, before we get started, you guys have heard me talk about Game Time, the fastest growing ticketing app in the United States. If you're looking to get out to any NBA games, an NHL game, a college basketball game, a concert, or even a comedy show, Game Time has amazing last-minute deals on tickets to all of these. Kevin Durant looked amazing with the Suns tonight. I've got to get up to Phoenix to check him out. Uh, Like I've said so many times, I just don't get many opportunities down here in Tucson, Arizona, to see that type of professional athlete up close and personal. I'm going to get on the Game Time app they're, it's super easy to use. I know they're going to take great care of me. I know I'm going to get a good deal. I know I'm going to get a good seat. It's a great experience, and I highly encourage you guys to check it out. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the Game Time app. Enter your email and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, enter your email and code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S for $20 off. Download the Game Time app today. Last-minute tickets. Lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So, you know, one of the things that everyone has always said about Kevin Durant, which is absolutely true, is that he's the best plug and play superstar in the league. And I really think it comes down to two reasons why offensive versatility and defensive versatility. It's that simple. What does versatility mean? It's the ability to play different ways, right? Or to not just play different ways, but to be good or effective in different ways. On the defensive end of the floor, you can ask Kevin Durant to guard on the perimeter. It's not his best strength, but he can do a decent job of it. And you can ask him to protect the rim in a pick-and-roll type of role, or you can ask him to be a backside help, kind of like low man type of responsibility, helping out of the weak side corner. He can do a bunch of different things. He can switch onto a bunch of different types of offensive players. He has versatility there. But that extends to the offensive end of the floor. And I thought that that was immediately apparent in him playing with the Phoenix Suns. I, I, coming into the uh, uh, the game, I had three predictions. I thought that you would see Josh Okoji end up being the uh, fifth starter just because I thought he had demonstrated he was their best point of attack defender over the course of this recent stretch of the season, and that was the specific need that they need out of that fifth starter uh, position, and that ended up being true. And then I thought that KD would primarily operate in an off-ball role to try to make a seamless transition into him coming on board with this Phoenix Suns offense. And then lastly, I thought he'd be super active on the defensive end, which he was. He had two blocks in his first shift. But I thought that that specifically that offensive versatility plugging into Phoenix's offense was immediately apparent. His first shot that he took, he missed it. But it's just a little shot off of a wide pin down. That means he kind of started in the corner, worked his man down to the block, caught a down screen, I believe it was from Deion Drayton, came up to the elbow, caught and shot a little 15-footer. He ended up missing it, but that's movement shooting. It's really easy to plug movement shooting into any offense in the NBA. Kevin Durant's amazing at that. There was a play... Or he dribbled up the left wing in transition and had a, a lot of space to rise up into a hesitation pull-up three. That's a great example of Kevin Durant being able to succeed in the transition elements of the game. When he came back in his second shift with Devin Booker and Chris Paul both off the floor, Charlotte came in in his zone, and Kevin Durant knocked down a three on the right wing in a gap in the zone. That's a weapon, a zone beater in the form of a seven-foot-tall sharpshooting shooting wing. Kevin Durant caught and knocked it down Easy. Then they went back to -to man-to-man, and they posted up Kevin Durant. As soon as he posted up on that left block, Damian Lee cut down the middle of the floor. Kevin Durant hit him for a layup. And then later in that shift, he transitioned into an on-ball pick-and-roll role and immediately knocked down two pull-up jump shots in pick-and-roll as the lead ball handler. Now, there's a side conversation to have. Eventually, on the biggest stage, I think that Kevin Durant needs to be primarily featured in that on-ball type of role. I really, I predicted that he would primarily operate off-ball to start with Phoenix, just because that's Kevin Durant's personality. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He wants to fit in. And he's so versatile that it's honestly the easiest way to quickly be good, is to have Chris Paul and Devin Booker play the way they're used to playing, have campaign play the way he's used to playing, and have Kevin Durant slot into that Mikhail Bridges role. But the thing is, Kevin Durant is the best pick-and-roll ball handler in the NBA this year on a points-per-possession basis. He's so unbelievably good at the pull-up jump shot. He's an entire stratosphere above everybody else in the entire league, literally, that as a result, he's been consistently drawing multiple defenders in that action, and his team has been getting great stuff. So in the long run, I think they're going to have to lean on that a little bit, but it's I do understand why he's going that way to start with Phoenix just to make the transition easier but they were always going to click quickly on offense we're going to talk about this a lot tonight specifically this idea but a natural basketball fit you know everyone talks about like building chemistry and that uh continuity and things like that and that stuff does matter make make no mistake it absolutely matters but it is easier to quickly generate that continuity and chemistry when there is a natural basketball fit than when it's more difficult russell westbrook He might've played three straight consecutive good games with the Lakers maybe twice or maybe three times total in a year and a half. He's three for three with the Los Angeles Clippers. Now they lost all three of those games, but not because of Russ and Russ has been good in all three games. Why? Natural basketball fit they needed somebody to operate with the ball in his hands they have tons of jump shooting around him so he has more space to get to the rim and he's been impactful pushing the pace and generating quality shots you're seeing that immediately with Kevin Durant too he could become a facsimile of Mikhail Bridges and easily just slot into that position but then at the same time you could put him on the ball and he's going to generate a bunch of high quality shots there and then on the other end of the floor defensively he's just capable of filling any specific defensive role. And that's why you've seen that immediate natural fit. The first four games of their schedule are pretty damn easy. They get the win against Charlotte. They play the Bulls on the road uh, next. Then after that, they have home games back-to-back against the Mavs. And the Thunder. So it's a good opportunity for them to build up some defensive chemistry before they go into a stretch of really tough games. They play the Kings, they play the Warriors, they play the Bucks back to back to back, which should teach us a lot more about them on the defensive end from a personnel standpoint um that's three completely different high-powered offenses that's a, a dribble drive pick and roll attack from sacramento that's going to really test their point of attack defense and their pick and roll defense then there's the golden state warriors which are much more of like a blender of offensive sets and it's really going to test their ability to lock and trail as shooters are flying off of screens or if they're going to end up switching those actions we'll end up seeing and then when they play milwaukee that's your powerful rim assault, that Giannis dropping his shoulder going through you time and time again, Drew Holiday, a power guard in the backcourt. It's going to be a different type of matchup there. So we're going to learn a lot about the Suns here in about a week and a half when they go through that tough stretch against the Kings, Warriors, and Bucks. but they've got a good stretch here in the next three games to continue to build some of that chemistry and continuity, which I expect to be easy for them all right let's move on to that ESPN early game uh tonight the Celtics versus the Cavs so you know I was having a conversation I want to say it was it was either yesterday or the day before but I was talking with uh, a buddy of mine who's a Celtics fan and I had made the point that I thought that and you guys have heard me make this point on the show but I think that the Sixers are a monumentally more dangerous second round opponent than the Cleveland Cavaliers like I don't even think it's remotely close I think that Milwaukee and Boston would handle Cleveland. I'd give them no chance to win. But against the Sixers, like I give them a legitimate puncher's chance to win. Like if Embiid comes in and plays really well and Harden plays really well, I think they can win. And this particular Celtics fan disagreed with me and said that he thought the Cavs were a bigger threat because the Celtics had struggled with their guards earlier in the season. And he's mainly referencing the two overtime wins at the beginning of the year uh, when the Celtics lost. But my counter to it was, you know, the Celtics weren't really playing great defense at that point in the season. And in a series, I keep looking at it tactically as the problem of the of the Cavs in their front court offensive skill. With Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, and they've been playing a lot of Isaac Koro at the small forward position, With that specific lineup, it's just too easy for them to load up the paint, which makes the job of your perimeter defenders guarding Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell so much easier. And I thought you saw that specific gap in offensive skill manifest itself in this game as it progressed. Because early in the game tonight, the Cavs hung tough, in large part because Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland made a lot of really tough shots. They were playing incredible basketball. Like I've said, the predicament that that uh, Cleveland is in is their guards are either going to kick to shooters that cannot make the shot at a high clip, or they're going to have to opt to take higher difficulty shots themselves. And when you're on that type of shot diet, many times a season they've opted to take those shots, which I totally understand. I mean, eventually as a ball handler, you're going to get sick of kicking to a a shooter in the corner that can't knock down the shot, even if he is wide open and you're going to think to yourself, I've got the best chance of converting this play. But the problem is, is over the course of a game, it's really difficult to continually make those extremely difficult shots. So they hung in for a half, but there in that third quarter, you saw it shift quickly. And, and I thought it was really interesting. Boston put one of either Al Horford or Robert Williams on Isaac Okoro or Chetty Osmond, whoever it was that was in that three spot. They put one of those guys on him the entire game and then just sat them on the block. So if like the ball's on the strong side, let's call it the right side of the floor, and Okoro's in the left corner then Robert Williams or Al Hofer is just sitting on the block the entire game, stepping into the lane, stepping out of the lane, stepping into the lane, stepping out of the lane to avoid that three-second call. And he's effectively zoning up at the rim, which just makes everything so much more difficult for Cleveland's guards and so much easier for Boston's perimeter defenders. And, you know, what's funny is, for the most part, during that third quarter, they just weren't even trying to hit him when he was open, Isaac Okoro. And when they did, Okoro was 0 for 3. And then on the other end of the floor, Boston's shot quality was sky high. Jalen Brown really set the tone to start the third quarter driving the ball to the basket. He had an aggressive move on Darius Garland in semi-transition, got to the rim and threw a pass into the corner. I believe it was Marcus Smart who knocked down the three. He had another play where he missed the layup at the rim, but it occupied the rim protectors and opened, I think Jason Tatum ended up getting an offensive rebound put back. And then Tatum had one of his better offensive quarters in a while because he's been slumping just a tiny bit. As of late, hit a couple of step-back threes, had a really nifty play to start the half where he cut back door on a design play and the lob was off target, and he somehow corralled the lob and threw a slingshot pass to Al Horford in the weak side corner for three. Really cool improvisational play. Got to the rim and finished over Jared Allen, attacked the offensive glass on that play I referenced earlier with Jalen Brown, and pretty quickly, when you have that type of gap in shot quality, wide-open catch-and-shoot threes, big, strong athletes finishing at the rim versus small guards taking extremely difficult shots over contests or bad shooters shooting wide-open threes, eventually you're going to see that shot quality shift. It's that classic small sample versus large sample size. As the sample size increased over the course of the game, it turned in in Boston's favor, and they turned a one-point lead into a 20-point lead in about seven minutes of game clock, which was a really, really... Impressive turnaround. And, and that's what I would expect to happen in a playoff series. I, I don't think it would get any easier for Cleveland in that setting, especially as the series progressed. To be honest, I think Boston or Milwaukee would both beat Cleveland in five games or less. I'm so that's like there are predictions that I don't feel great about, and there are predictions I feel great about. I feel great about the fact that Boston or Milwaukee would dispatch of Cleveland very quickly. I, I just I just don't think it's a good matchup for them at all, whatsoever. Philly, not so much. You know, I'd pick Boston, and I'd pick Milwaukee to win that series, but I think it'd be a much tougher series. And so this is where it brings us to the race for the one seed, because Milwaukee ended up taking the one seed earlier this week, and now Boston's a half game back. And so I think this race really matters, because that Milwaukee-Boston conference finals matchup is going to be a bloodbath and it's going to be extremely demanding physically. And so I think it's going to be very important to secure that one seed to lock yourself up a much easier second-round opponent in Cleveland. So we're going to be watching that very closely down the stretch. All right, let's move on to the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors are the five seed in the Western Conference. Can you believe it? It was, it was looking really bad um, when they got rolled by the Lakers uh, a little while back, and uh, they had slipped, I believe they had slipped into the play-in, actually. And obviously with Steph still being a week away from coming back, it didn't look good. Um, But then they beat the Rockets, you know, in a game that they were supposed to win. And then they came from behind to win a tough game against the Minnesota Timberwolves. And then they turned a 23-point deficit against the Trailblazers into an 18-point win. (laughs) in a wild game last night. They fell down big early in the game, in large part because Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole were both ice cold, and uh, uh, everybody for Portland was knocking down shots. I want to say they were like eight for 19 from three in the first half. Um, but, you know, there was a couple of specific things that I wanted to hit on as part of their comeback. First of all, right before the half... They won on a little bit of a run. Not much of one, but they got it from 23 to 17. There was a play where Clay Thompson was able to draw a foul and get two free throws. Jordan Poole had a late driving layup right before the half. They got a couple of stops. You go into the half down 17, which makes it seem so much more achievable. You know, this happened with the Lakers the other day. They were down 27 or whatever, but they got it down to 14 at the half, which made it so that in the second half, they could make the necessary adjustments. Again, the coaching staff can make adjustments in the halftime period in a way that they can't during timeouts. If you're down 23, 24, those adjustments aren't going to have that much of an impact. It's just too big of a hole to dig out of. But if you get it relatively close, you give your coaching staff and your players a fighting chance. And, you know, Not only did you establish hope, but you gave Steve Kerr to make an adjustment. And the big adjustment that Steve Kerr went with in the second half is he went all in on his 3-2 zone. He ran it every single time that the Warriors had a dead ball situation or off of a made basket. And uh, and it it was extremely effective. So they ran their 3-2 zone on just nine possessions in the first half. They ran it on 24 possessions in the second half. In, in Golden State's 3-2 zone is super interesting. You don't see a lot of 3-2 zone because it's a much more difficult zone than a 2-3 zone. If you think of it as a 2-3 zone, you have a center directly under the basket. You have, two, you have other two forwards on the wing and your guards up top. Your center can linger around the basket. That's your least mobile player that doesn't have to move very much. When you invert that into a 3-2, it's kind of like a five-out zone. All five players have responsibilities at the three-point line, as opposed to in a 2-3 zone, the center is never going to come out except for maybe to contest a shot around the semicircle or around the free-throw line, right? So in a 3-2 zone, uh, 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 you have much more mobility responsibilities to cover ground out to the three-point line. When the ball's on one side of the floor, Like if the ball gets into the right corner and Draymond Green's in the bottom of the zone, Draymond Green has to go out to the corner and Kevon Looney has to get all the way over under the basket. If they reverse it, Kevon Looney has to rotate all the way out to the three-point line and Draymond Green has to come over. It's a very difficult zone to run, but when you run it right... It has it can be really impactful, especially with Looney and Draymond at the rim when in, when they're in those rotations, because you've taken away the three point line. And in the modern NBA, there just aren't that many players these days that are comfortable working out of the middle of the floor. And the three two zone has a gaping hole right around the free throw line where people can go to work if they're comfortable there. You just don't see too many guys there. Now, that'll be interesting when they play the Clippers, I think, tomorrow night, because the Clippers have several guys that are comfortable operating out of the middle of the floor. So I'll be curious to see how much um, Steve Kerr can go to the 3-2 zone in that specific game. But it was really, really impactful against Portland. They were completely flummoxed. None of those three-point shots were open. Nobody wanted to attack the rim. Nobody wanted to work out of the mid-range. And they fell apart
1: quickly.
0: Uh, Portland scored just 11 times in 33 chances against Golden State's 3-2 zone. And I thought that was a huge part of how they got back into the game. Then on the other end, in the third quarter, Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole finally started making shots. And things turned around really quickly. Also, special shout-out to Klon Looney. He was super aggressive towards the rim in the third quarter. He had a really nice fake dribble handoff all the way to the rim. He was crashing the offensive glass. The Warriors cut the lead from 16-2. to In less than two and a half minutes. It was a very remarkable comeback, and they rode that wave to a comfortable victory. I also wanted to shout out out Jonathan Kaminga. He had 16 points on 10 shots in this game. Obviously, he had the two monster dunks. Obviously, we saw the one on social media everywhere where he uh, rose up over Shaden Sharp and uh, somebody else. I can't remember who, but that nasty down-the-lane Dunk. Um, uh, kind of reminded me of DeAndre Jordan over Paul Gasol and Andrew Bynum. Some of you guys might remember that one. Uh, but then he had another dunk shortly after there, where he ripped through to the baseline and rose up and and went up off one off of one foot and dunked it with two hands. He's kind of starting to come to terms with the fact that when he elevates, nobody is actually capable of jumping with him, and it can get pretty scary once you mentally accept that because then you're just going to start jumping you know, even when like, you're going to be way less timid around the rim, which I think is going to open things up. But he had a real, uh, he had a really, really nice play in the late fourth quarter that I wanted to highlight real quick. There was like something like two minutes left and uh, it was garbage time. The game's basically over, but this is just a demonstration of the basketball IQ that Jonathan Keming is gaining specifically kind of operating as a big man on the offensive end of the floor. So Golden State runs a set and it involves a cross screen out of the post, essentially like imagine two post players on the block. One post player sets a cross screen that uh, allows the other post player to come across the floor. One of the main reasons why you do that is because a lot of times people will fight post mismatches by fronting the post. But if I have to trail you through a screening action, it's impossible for me to front the post. I've now just given you walk-and-trail position, which is going to give you the, the the ability to seal me, right? So Jonathan goes out there, and he gets a seal, but Moses Moody doesn't make the post-entry pass. And so the Blazers defender, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Reddish, but I can't remember. But he fights around Camino and actually fronts him. And in that position... Like, a lot of players would just quit on that play. No, Jonathan Kaminga, like, turned and switched his leverage back towards the rim. And then Anthony Lamb flashed to the high post. Moody hit him. And now that high-low action is open. You flipped the angle. The ball reversed. Now that guy who's fronting you is suddenly on your backside. They dropped it off to him, and he got another dunk. I I think it's really interesting how Golden State has converted Jonathan Kaminga into basically a center or a big man on the offensive end of the floor while deploying him as a wing defensively. It's allowed them to turn a player that might be several years away from being an impactful offensive wing to being someone they could use right away in specific matchups as an offensive big. Um, The Warriors are in great shape. You could not have asked to be in better position with Steph returning. They've got this tough game against the Clippers tomorrow. They're going to be hungry for a win. It's going to be a really hard one for them to win. I'd give them a very small chance. Uh, But Steph is supposed to return in the upcoming road trip. So things are starting to look up for the Warriors. And I I just wanted to take this chance to make a little tip of the cap to Klay Thompson, to Jordan Poole, to Draymond Green, Kevon Looney, and the others for the work they've done over the course of this stretch of the season, these two stretches of the season where they've been down their guys and floating the ship and giving them a real chance to go on a stretch run. Um, lineups this year that have had Draymond Green, Kevon Looney, Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, with no Steph Curry and no Andrew Wiggins, are plus 0.3 points per 100 possessions. Doesn't sound like much, but being positive with that group is insane to me. That's championship level will to win. So tip of the cap to those guys, they are set up in a great position to make a stretch run. Bet the NBA on TNT with a no-sweat same-game parlay from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. Every Thursday night, you'll get bonus bets back if your same-game parlay doesn't hit. NBA same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular same-game parlays already made for you in the FanDuel Sportsbook app. My favorite bet is... On Thursday night this week is the Clippers on the road in Golden State. They're only a three-point favorite, but they are desperate for a win. 0-3 with Westbrook. They're uniquely equipped to attack Golden State's 3-2 zone, and they have a lot of perimeter size advantages. So I like the Clippers minus three in that game. However you want to play, you can bet the NBA on TNT every Thursday night with a no sweat same game parlay. Just head to FanDuel.com slash Jason T to download FanDuel today and get in on the action. And if you're in Massachusetts, get ready because FanDuel is coming soon. Make sure you check out FanDuel.com slash Mass and take advantage of their great pre-live offers. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. All right, let's move on to the Lakers. So uh, just going to talk about them for just a minute. They, I was genuinely confused when I saw that Anthony Davis was out tonight. All the reports said that he was pain-free. Apparently this was planned rest, which I understand. But at the same time, like, this is a must-win game. And a game that they very well could have lost without Anthony Davis. They trailed by, I believe, eight points or seven points in the third quarter of this game on the road, it could have gone south for them quickly. So I was confused by the strategy of resting AD, but that gamble paid off for the Lakers. A bunch of guys made big plays. Rui Hachimura had a great game. One of those games that you don't really look at the box score for because he was really impactful defensively and on the glass and just a handful of really smart, savvy offensive plays. Austin Reeves and Dennis Schroeder took over ball handling responsibilities in an excellent way. Um, I thought that Wayne and Gabriel had a great game, just dirty work as the backup center. They grinded out a win against OK City, uh, Oklahoma City, which was big time and helps them a lot in the standings, especially considering you just bought Anthony Davis two days of rest before a game in Minnesota where they're going to need him to be fantastic. Uh, but what I wanted to briefly touch on in this uh, in this particular segment was the Grizzlies game. You know, I talked to Colin Coward last night. For those of you guys who haven't seen it yet, uh, Colin and I went for about 45 minutes and talked just a shit ton of NBA uh, around the league. Check that out if you haven't done so yet. It's on the Volumes YouTube channel. Uh, But in that conversation, we talked a lot about the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, or excuse me, about the Los Angeles Lakers. And one of the things I said to Colin was like, all is not lost. Now, the D'Angelo Russell injury was unfortunate. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But he's coming back on Friday. This team is a good basketball team without LeBron James now. That is one of the advantages of the job that Rob Palenka did at the deadline. Nick, we've talked about it. They paid a dear price for that. LeBron, all reporting, says that he suffered this exact injury in January, opted to play on it rather than resting it as a result of the predicament the team was in in the standings, and he literally floated the ship. During that stretch, the only reason the Lakers have a chance is because of what LeBron James did during that stretch in late December, January, early February without Anthony Davis. So he deserves a boatload of credit for that. But one of the advantages of Net Gamble is they've now built a talented roster that is capable of winning games without LeBron James. The problem is, is they will not be able to beat good teams unless D'Angelo Russell is available. And you saw that in that Grizzlies game. I I tweeted after the game that I thought the Lakers had really good half-court defense in that game. And I thought they lost it in transition, but I didn't get a chance to see the data until today. And it was exactly what happened. They held the Grizzlies to a 92.2 offensive rating in the half-court, which is great. For perspective, the Charlotte Hornets have a 92.2 offensive rating in the half-court all season, which ranks 29th. In the NBA. So the Lakers did their job in the half court, but without D'Angelo Russell and without LeBron James, all the ball handling responsibilities fell, they got slotted improperly. Now Schroeder is a primary ball handler, right? Now Austin Reeves is a secondary ball handler. You know, now Lonnie Walker is getting a lot of ball handling responsibilities, and they they just couldn't take care of the basketball. They had 26 turnovers. Gave up 41 points off of those turnovers. According to Synergy, they had 36 points in this game just in transition, which is the story of the Memphis Grizzlies all season. Keep them in the half court. You can stop them. Let them get out in transition, and they'll kill you, and that's what happened in this game. But D'Angelo Russell is supposed to return Friday. That should slot everybody properly. Now D'Angelo Russell's a primary ball handler, which he's capable of being. Not for a great team, but he can be that for a good team, which is all the Lakers need while LeBron James is out of the lineup. That puts Dennis Schroeder in a secondary ball handler role. That puts Austin Reeves in a tertiary ball handling role. That puts Lonnie Walker in a position where you hopefully don't have to start any possessions with him which which were rough in this particular game. So, it should slot everybody properly and give them a much better chance to fight through this next stretch of their schedule. All right, let's move on to the Clippers. So, they're 0 3 without Westbrook. But I think Russ has been good in all three games. This isn't like what it was with the Lakers where the fit was clunky. You know, LeBron James is an on-ball shot creator. He can work off the ball, but his best impact is on the ball that's the opposite of what the idea is with the Clippers Kawhi Leonard can work on the ball but he's best if he fights for position down in the post and someone makes a post entry and he can finish plays as a score in specific matchups in specific spots on the floor with specific spacing that's when Kawhi is at his best that flipped dynamic makes a much more natural fit for Russ as a point guard right You saw the opposite of that that effect with the Lakers. He was operating much more off the basketball. So his weaknesses were highlighted. Whereas with the Clippers, his strengths have been highlighted. And I think that's a big part of why that fit has been so good so far. He is not responsible for why the Clippers have lost these three games in a way that he was responsible for a lot of, not directly responsible, but he did have a lot of bad games with the Lakers that helped contribute to losses. I don't think he's had a bad game yet with the Clippers we'll see what happens in the long run but I think it's been a good start so far my only gripe with the Westbrook thing is Ty Luce closed with him twice and we've seen what happened we saw what happened against the Kings last uh last night he took a bad shot late in the game uh, in an isolation against Mike Conley he just went rogue and took a one dribble fadeaway, one leg fadeaway uh over Conley and just barely grazed the left side of the rim like those are the things that they're gonna have to sort out but I don't blame Russ for that I blame Ty Lou. the book is out on Russell Westbrook as a closing player, they have to figure that out. That's on the coaching staff. The reason why I want to talk about the Clippers tonight is Paul George. He had a super insightful interview with JJ Redick that gets released on all platforms tomorrow, I believe, if I was reading the social media correctly. Uh, But they released a little clip and it was a really insightful you know, four or five minute bit uh, with JJ and Paul talking about the transition from him being a basically the guy in Indiana to playing alongside a star and Russell Westbrook with the thunder to playing alongside a star in Kawhi Leonard with the Clippers and now two stars technically uh, with Russell Westbrook and Kawhi Leonard and just what that transition has been like. He talked a lot about how, you know, how good the game of basketball has been to him and how he's made tons of money. And now he just wants to win and how he doesn't have an ego and he, and he likes being in that secondary role. And I appreciate the sentiment. I do. And there's some truth to that idea, particularly at the end of games, but the basketball has changed so much that there's no such thing as like, who's the one and who's the two. How many times over the course of the last few, you know, five, six years, have you heard like, oh man, Chris Paul is going to go play with James Harden. There's only one basketball. How's that going to work? It worked great. You know, oh, Kevin Durant's going to the Suns. It's him, Chris Paul and Devin Booker. There's one basketball. They looked awesome on offense tonight. Right. Like, so it's just one of those things where, it, as the game of basketball has changed and it's become so much more about like advantage creation and you need multiple ball handlers on the floor, it's no longer about we have one basketball. That co- collective talent only, it, it, it's like a rising tide that floats all boats. And it's, and, and, and so I never really have bought into that specific concept. And right now, regardless of what Paul George views as the psychological dynamic of the team, they need more out of him. The Clippers are 2-5 and in their last seven games, and Paul George is averaging just 24 points per game on below 45% shooting. That's just not good enough for the level of talent that Paul George is. And on film, it stands out in a couple of specific ways. In my opinion, it's all about his approach and his mentality on the ball. He went up a level in the 2021 postseason. Some of you guys remember that. That was when he pulled out that Utah Jazz series without Kawhi Leonard and then took the Suns to six without Kawhi Leonard and a big part of that specific playoff run was Paul George was bought into the physicality, like imposing your will physically on the offensive end of the floor. He was attacking the rim like crazy in that playoff run. He actually averaged 3.1 restricted area makes per game, which is a higher mark than I think he's ever hit during a regular season, at least in recent, uh, in his recent career history. So he just had a, a very clear approach, which was I am going to get to the basket and build everything else in my game off of that. I think that that's gone the opposite direction in this particular season. When I'm watching Paul George now, he's taking a lot of really tough shots when he doesn't need to. Now, there's a time and a place for tough shot making, right? Like If you're in a groove, like you've made a couple in a row and you're in a rhythm, hell yeah, man, go to work. Take your step backs. Take your tough fall away twos and you're and your difficult off the dribble threes if you're in a sh- position where you have to rescue a possession yeah there's no choice nobody's open there's two seconds on the shot clock yeah uncork one of those really difficult shots that you work on but for paul george right now those shots are just a regular part of his shot diet and i think that's partially why he's struggling to really get into a rhythm and the problem is is those shots even for the best players in the world those really difficult like two three dribble combination into a step back contested two. no matter how good you are at those it's like 37% shot 36% shot so you're going to miss a lot of them and that thing can that can compile with your and your confidence and your rhythm and lead to a bad shooting night I'll give you guys an example so in that game against Denver the other night Kawhi is going off in regulation uh, down the stretch, and Paul George isn't really involved. He took he took one late pull up jump shot that he missed, but we get into OT, and he just like takes an early clock behind the back dribble contested three, like a really difficult shot that he missed, and led to a run out for Denver where Jamal Murray hit a three because they didn't get matched up in transition, and then he had a turnover on the following possession. But like that shot is a great example of the approach that I'm talking about. I want to say there was like 12 or 13 seconds on the shot clock. There was no like immediate need for him to take that shot. He wasn't in rhythm offensively at that point. It was just, I'm going to put this up and live with the result. And chances are statistically that you're going to miss that shot. If he's made a couple in a row, now all of a sudden he's in a groove that ticks up into a 50% shot because he's confident and he's feeling good about himself. And that sort of thing, I've always believed that sort of thing really matters with shot results in the NBA. I know all the nerds don't believe in, in the hot hand theory, but I very much do. Um, and so I, I think that that's a specific thing with his approach that he needs to address. When he's attacking the rim primarily and using his tough shot making as a counter to that, He's a bona fide two-way superstar, but when he's not, he's much, much less than that. And he gets away from that way too frequently. I understand it. You know, like you, I've worked really hard on those shots over the course of the last four or five years of my life. And I use them a lot when I play. And there's a tendency when you've worked on that kind of thing, because it's easier, not in shot result, but it's easier to just take a contested shot than it is to physically impose your way to the rim. So I get it where it's like sometimes it's almost like a curse of your own skill that you'll, as of almost like a laziness, take the tougher shot. I understand it, but the bottom line is that's not going to be his best chance to win a championship, which according to his interview with, Paul, uh, with J.J. Redick is his primary concern. So I really want to look over the course of the home stretch of the season at Paul George being more physically aggressive to the rim. I think that would turn things around for him. All right, really quickly, before we get out of here tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the Sixers and the Heat and their little home-and-home. Home. So the Sixers went into Miami tonight without Joel Embiid and got revenge for their close loss. Uh, Harden and Maxi combined for 50 points. They put together an excellent defensive effort, and they won comfortably. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that particular game. I want to talk about this game the other night. Just an absolute rock fight of a game that the Heat won in Philly 101-99. to And the reason why I want to talk about it is this, to me, is a great example of what a rock fight looks like. And you see a lot of rock fights in the playoffs, and I think it's very interesting how teams win those games. So I wanted to kind of break it down a little bit. So Philly was down big uh, in the middle of the fourth. I think they were down 11. Uh, Both teams are running a ton of zone. Philly got really hot for just a second. Tyrese Maxey hit a three, had a couple of transition runouts. They got it back to a close game. And then there was a lid on the rim for both teams. And down the stretch, I think the last like four or five minutes of the game, neither team could make a shot, and no one was feeling comfortable. And to me, that is the foundational aspect of what a rock fight is. And those of you who have played basketball at any level will know what I'm talking about. There is a a type of basketball game. It's usually extremely physical, but it's the type of game where no offensive player on the floor feels good about their perimeter game, Right. So, like, the pull-up shooters don't feel comfortable going into their pull-up shots. The, you know, catch-and-shoot guys all have sweaty palms, and they don't feel comfortable going into their shots. No one's feeling confident. Nothing feels good, and it kind of gets stagnant, and nobody knows what to do. In those environments, it becomes a rock fight. And in that environment, it's so much about just forcing the ball into the basket by any means necessary, around the rim. And I thought it was really interesting. It came down to a final possession. It was, I believe, uh, 99 to 98 and Jimmy Butler had the ball with just over a minute left. And the Sixers were in their two, three zone, but Jimmy Butler got it on the right wing and it kind of functionally turned into like an ice coverage because PJ Tucker basically sat back. Like he was a pick and roll big. And I believe it was De'Anthony Melton who was the top guy in the zone who was kind of sitting on Jimmy's high side and he calls Caleb Martin to come over and set a screen, but Caleb Martin can't set the screen cause he's effectively icing it, which means you're denying the ball handler, the ball screen, right? You're forcing him towards his help on the baseline. So he's in this awkward position where he can't drive to the left around the screen. Cause D'Anthony Melton's just literally waiting there for him. PJ Tucker's waiting under the, uh, like two, like four or five feet off of him in the short corner None. Like yeah, there's some shooters open on skip passes, but nobody feels good about their catch and shoot shot. We just talked about that. It's a rock fight. Those shots probably aren't going in, and Joel Embiid's waiting directly under the rim. So you would think like driving to the rim is an extremely low percentage shot, but this is rock fight basketball, and Jimmy Butler just does a hard dribble to his uh, to his left does a hard spin move, like steps on P.J. Tucker's foot, almost sprains his ankle, like, like in the spin move, loses control of the basketball a little bit. embeds there. He goes up and under. He, literally, as he's trying to finish on the other side of the rim, the ball is disconnected from his hand temporarily, and he somehow manages to regain control and just flip it up into the basket. And it's the lead-changing shot. Other end of the floor, James Harden tries to bully his way to the rim, leaves it short on the front rim. They get a stop. They go down the other end. Joel Embiid tries to take Bam Adebayo off the dribble, and Bam Adebayo just smothers him and blocks him along the baseline. Then on the final possession, Jimmy, or, uh, uh, Joel Embiid actually did a really nice job navigating a double team and, and hit James Harden at the top of the key, and he had a wide-open three. I shouldn't say wide open. It was kind of a, a chase contest, and he had a, a pretty decent look. Uh, but he had a decent look, and he missed it. Um... But like, like I said, in those environments, those types of shots just don't go in. And that's why I wanted to talk about this particular game. Because it's not... Again, the Sixers got revenge tonight. They went in and, and kicked the Heat's ass without Joel Embiid. And, and, and you guys know me. I'm way higher on the Sixers than most people. I think they have a real chance to win the Eastern Conference if James Harden and Joel Embiid both play well. But I, I just... I wanted to talk about that particular game and and what happened down the stretch just because that to me is such a great example of what a rock fight is. And I and I often talk about how you have to win in different ways in the postseason. Different games take on different feels. Sometimes the final score is 93 to 87, sometimes the final score is 117 to 113. There's different st- like there's different styles and so much so much of it just depends on how people feel on any given night. Does your pull-up jump shot feel good? Do your skill players feel comfortable? Or is everyone off, and now it's a fist fight? And the teams that can win both of those ways have the best chance to make it far in the postseason. And say what you want about the Miami Heat, and they've got a boatload of personnel shortcomings, way too many undrafted guys and buyout guys and guys that people around the league didn't want. But they've got Bam Adebayo, and they've got Jimmy Butler, and the two of those guys are two of the best rock fight basketball players that we have in the NBA. And, and, and their ability to win that type of game will always keep them a threat no matter what their regular season record is, no matter who their postseason matchup is. I didn't give them any chance to beat the Celtics last year. And Jimmy was one shot away from getting them to the NBA finals. And that's why I just can never get off the Miami Heat bandwagon. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. Uh, Gosh, that was a lot of basketball to get into. Uh, We are taking tomorrow off, and then on Friday, we're going to be doing five big questions with Carson. You guys seemed to like that show last week, so we're going to do that again. Then we'll get back into our instant reaction stuff this weekend. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We'll see you guys next time.